Hey friends, it's Fred Greenhalgh, producer here at Realm. A new episode of Ominous Thrill is ready for your ears. It's Advice After Dark. Late night radio host Bella Donna delivers extreme advice to the delighted horror of her audience until a creepy listener forces her to confront the brutal consequences of her show. Here's a preview. Welcome to my live stream, Bella. Say hello to everyone. What do you want? Click the link. Watch along. I'm not clicking links from psychos. You put that trash on the radio every night and I'm the psycho. You sound like you need help. I'm not one of your fake callers. My show is very, very real. Do you want to know what it's called? No, I don't. It's called Belladonna Gets What's Coming. Starring you. What? It's really starring me. But it's all about you. And you'd be surprised how many people want to watch you. Get what's coming. I called the police. They'll be here any minute. Yeah, well, we should be done before they get here. Find Ominous Thrill out now, everywhere you listen. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Degradation trip. garden of buried pleasures, neatly in a row, are planted life's true secrets, in a world yet still unknown. Scratch acid, greatest gift. It got quiet in the car as the Los Angeles skyline faded in the rearview mirror. With the bright city lights disappearing behind us, we were forced to acknowledge what we'd committed to, forced to consider the ways the job could go wrong. But it was only in the privacy of our thoughts that we entertained our fears. Neither of us were willing to vocalize them. Such an admission was akin to putting a curse on yourself. Risk was always something we only acknowledged in hindsight. I had been offered the job by Pavel, who was at one time my dealer. I'd fallen out of touch with him, but when he called me and said that he had a task for me, a task that would pay handsomely, I was quite willing to listen. The only catch was that our mark was in the town of Mesquite, Nevada, just northeast of Vegas near the Arizona border. Having no vehicle of my own, I'd inquired with Fetch, who agreed to go with me on the job for an even 50-50 split. He'd picked me up at my apartment in Hawthorne that evening, and the two of us had gotten on the freeway as the light trickled out of the sky. It always made me nervous leaving the city. When I was on smack, I never liked to travel far from my home base. I would have recurring nightmares about getting stranded somewhere without my stash, having to kick while I searched restlessly for a hit 
I'd brought a few bags of China White with me, and if needed, I could always cop some more in Vegas. You could get anything you want in Las Vegas. You didn't even have to know anyone. But that didn't stop me from feeling vulnerable. I just wanted to get there, get the job done, and get back home. If everything went smooth, we could be back in L.A. before sunrise. I knew Fetch would be equally desperate to get back home. Unlike me, he'd managed to get off smack by that time. But he was still a patron of the methadone clinic, and when he missed his scheduled morning dose, it wasn't a pretty sight. Under a darkening blanket of clouds, we crawled through the Inland Empire, past miles of identical warehouses. After we'd climbed up the Cajon Pass and descended upon the Mojave Desert, the clouds began to break, revealing a pale crescent moon hanging above us. I noticed the gas gauge was nearing empty. Want to fill up? I asked. I'll pay for this one. Sure, Fetch replied pulling the car off the freeway and stopping at a 76 station. I got out of the car and slid my card through the reader. When prompted, I selected the cheapest grade of gasoline and started the pump. While the car was filling up, I wandered over to the bathroom for a quick shot. When I emerged from that gas station bathroom, my pupils sharpened to points, my shoulders relaxed a dot of blood clinging to my forearm, and I listened to the distant buzz of tires on Interstate 15, and I gazed up at the glow of the moon in the ashen autumn sky. Everything suddenly seemed miraculously manageable. My fears and concerns had washed away, leaving only a subtle warmth that radiated through my body. Let's go, Fetch said tightening the gas cap on his blocky old Volvo. He rolled his eyes at me as I slid merrily into the passenger seat. You fucking junkie, he said, snidely. Oh, and you're so much better, I said, drinking your cup of goop every morning. He laughed, and I handed him a cigarette before lighting one up for myself. In truth, I did think he was better than me. I was jealous of him for getting off dope. I was tired of being an addict, tired of searching for veins, tired of waking up sick. But it was a burden I couldn't let go of, a trap that felt far too deep to crawl out of. As we traversed the stark desert landscape, the city lights faded enough to expose the rich canopy of stars that hung overhead. I stared up at them for a while, trying to parse out Ursa Major. But by the time we reached the state line, the stars again receded behind the luminous glow of neon signs and high-rise hotels. It was just after 10 p.m. when we passed through Vegas. From the road, the city seemed to be just coming alive, its vibrant lights and shining towers calling like a beacon to weary travelers enticing them with the promise of fortune and hedonistic delights. We stopped to fill up the tank again when we were just north of Vegas. I was starting to get anxious, and I could tell Fetch was as well. He kept running his fingers through his beard nervously and drumming on his thighs. 
Finally, at around midnight, we landed in Mesquite. As far as I could tell, Mesquite was a city of retirees and golf courses. A little desert oasis where everyone drove a Cadillac and lived in a stucco mansion. I pulled out the address Pavel had given me. Tidy cursive letters on a wrinkled sheet of stationery. 1462 Pronghorn Lane, it said. The house was situated atop a hill on the northern edge of town. The long, meandering driveway was bordered by walls of sandstone, and pillars of cactus adorned the front yard. It was a big house, all sharp right angles. Its walls were a deep brown, almost red, and all its windows were dark. It appeared to be unoccupied, just as Pavel said it would be. As we approached the property, Fetch pulled over to the side of the road and shut off the engine. He cracked his knuckles and looked over at me. Well? he asked. I looked up at the house, its great windows revealing a dark and featureless interior. We'll do a sweep. Make sure the place is empty, and if it's all clear, we'll get in there and find that box so we could get the fuck out of here. He gave a simple nod and we eased ourselves out of the car, crouching low as we climbed a sandy hillside and approached the house from behind. In its backyard, we found a broad concrete patio with a fire pit at its center. The large, circular pit had thick steel walls, and as I passed it, I peered inside at the charred contents. It was only when I stood back from the pit that I noticed it was surrounded by an intricate seven-pointed star that had been etched into the concrete. I found it all a bit peculiar, but Fetch hardly seemed to notice. He crept past the fire pit and right up to the house. After taking another look around, I did the same. When we peeked in through the windows, we saw stylish furniture and marble countertops. Sprawling pieces of unbearable modern art covered the walls. Pavel had told me it would be unoccupied, and that the house had no security system. I hadn't stopped to question how he would have known those things, concluding only that it meant things were going according to plan. I crept back down to the car and got my lock-picking kit out of the trunk. We hadn't come armed, but I'd brought a large, wood-handled felling axe with me, just in case things went bad. Before I shut the trunk, I gazed for a moment at its sharpened steel head, gleaming under the glow of the streetlights. As I walked back up the hill, I tried to ignore the trepidation I felt building in my chest. After a bit of finessing with the tension tool, my hands steadied enough to pop the lock on the house's back door. Fetch and I held our breath, anticipating the scream of a security alarm. But the house remained silent, and one after another, we stepped into the quiet darkness. On the chance that someone was inside, perhaps asleep in one of the bedrooms, we refrained from turning on any lights, opting instead to feel our way through the darkness. As I moved from room to room, 
seeking to confirm that we were alone. I could feel the anxious beat of my heart in my tightly clamped jaw. After I had swept the ground floor and Fetch had checked the upper story, we were put at least somewhat at ease, knowing that nobody was home. All we found were lavishly decorated rooms and flawless, untouched bedspreads. The box, Pavel had told me, would be sitting atop a mantle near the front of the house. We lit up our flashlights and inspected the entryway, the living room, the front hallway. But we couldn't find the mantle or the box. I moved into the dining room, where an elegant table was set with fine porcelain and sterling silver utensils. Meanwhile, Fetch began searching in the kitchen, where he eventually found something that caused him to call out to me with muffled urgency. Come look at this, he said. I walked into the kitchen and found him sitting atop a thick marble countertop with an elaborate beveled edge. Half the cabinet doors were ajar, and next to him, one of the drawers was pulled open, a messy stack of paper sitting inside. Fetch was holding another piece of paper in his hands, studying it under the glow of his flashlight. He went on reading the piece of paper perplexedly, before handing it to me and removing another from the drawer. The sheet of paper he'd handed me appeared to be a normal electrical bill. But the perplexing part about it was the fact that the bill's recipient was Pavel. Fetch handed me the gas bill. It was the same. Recipient, Pavel Kodrin. Even the homeowner's insurance has his name on it, Fetch said. I looked up at him quizzically. Why would someone hire us to burglarize their own home? I don't know, Fetch said, sliding off the counter. Insurance fraud? Whatever it is, it seems sketchy. This whole thing feels weird now. I mean, since when could Pavel even afford a place like this? As much as I didn't want to be deterred by the revelation, I couldn't disagree. Knowing that this was Pavel's house, and that he had chosen to withhold that information from us, gave me an apprehensive feeling about the job. Something inside me was screaming that it was a setup, that we should get out while we could. But another part of me, the greedy part, was insisting that $6,000 was $6,000. What did I care if Pavel wanted to file a fraudulent insurance claim? This doesn't change anything, I said to Fetch. We still deliver the package. We still get paid. If we can find it, he said. We stuffed the papers back in the drawer and resumed our search, looking through pantries and closets, beneath ornate canopy beds. As I scoured the upstairs den, something caught my eye. It was sitting on the floor, beneath a large oak desk, and upon closer inspection, I saw that it perfectly fit the description Pavel had given me. It was a box, made of wood and painted black, about a foot tall and just as wide. It had a circular brass clasp on the front of it. I picked it up, surprised at how heavy it was, and looked at the underside. There was a capital letter G carved into it, just like Pavel said there would be. I placed it under my arm and walked out into the hallway. 
Fetch, I said. I found it. Let's get the fuck out of here. We cut our flashlights and crept back out the back door, pulling it shut behind us. When we got back to the car, I took the box and placed it gently in the back seat. The tables flipped now we got all the coconuts, bitch, Fetch said as he climbed into the driver's seat. As he started the engine and set off back down Pronghorn Lane, I saw Fetch's eyes drift into the rearview mirror. Did Pavel say what was inside? He asked. No, I replied, looking over my shoulder at it. Should we open it? Fetch shrugged, and I hefted the box out of the back seat and set it on my lap. I could hear something jostling around inside as I moved it. I pried my thumb into the brass clasp and unlatched it, slowly easing the lid open. Inside, the walls of the box were lined with something that looked like velvet, and sitting in the box's padded interior was a smooth glass sphere about the size of a bowling ball. It didn't look solid, but instead like it was filled with something. Within the ball of glass was something that looked dark and grimy and unmistakably familiar. Fetch leaned over the center console and peeked inside the box as well. He put his face right up against the opening and stared at it. Huh, he said finally, shrugging and returning his gaze to the road. For a moment, before I closed the lid of the box and put it in the back seat, I swore that I could smell whatever was inside. It smelled a bit like vinegar, a familiar scent that I knew all too well. It was the smell of black tar heroin. I knew, obviously, that plenty of illicit substances had moved through Pavel's hands. But never in all my years as an addict had I seen dope carried in such an extravagant container. Plastic wrap and duct tape usually got the job done. And if this expensive-looking crystal ball indeed did contain a cool kilo of smack, as it appeared to, it also deepened the mystery of the job's real purpose. Obviously, Pavel couldn't file an insurance claim for a stolen ball of drugs. So what the hell were we doing there? What had started as a simple robbery had evolved into an inadvertent trafficking mission, and it all left me wondering why Pavel would want to shell out $12,000 just to have a brick delivered to him. I knew he had guys who would do the job for cheaper, and with much better security. It seemed to me that there were much more efficient and inconspicuous ways to accomplish what Pavel had hired us for. Still, I refrained from raising my concerns. Drug dealers tended to get paranoid, and I knew Pavel was prone to rash decision-making. I sat back in my seat and pulled out my cigarettes cracking the window and lighting one up. Looking up at the highway, I noticed the car beginning to drift out of the lane. I looked over at Fetch and saw him gazing, transfixed, into the rearview mirror. When he noticed me looking at him, he snapped his eyes back to the road. I wondered if he was thinking the same thing I was that perhaps the contents of that box were worth more to him than a meager $6,000 paycheck from Pavel. 
as I studied him out of the corner of my eye. I noticed for the first time that night that he looked remarkably slender. His arms, wrapped in messy amateur tattoos, looked bone-thin as they hung before him, clamped idly on the steering wheel. Taking a long, slow drag on my cigarette, I considered the schemes that might be brewing in his mind. If he wanted to scratch the assignment and steal Pavel's merchandise, as I suspected he may, he would have to choose whether he wanted to proceed with or without my help. It was possible that he would offer to split it with me, but more likely his plan would consist of taking it all for himself and cutting me out of the deal entirely. He wasn't exactly a pillar of loyalty, showed little in the way of compassion. He'd once stolen his own father's credit card while the old man was going through chemotherapy. If Fetch was thinking about booting me out of the car and leaving me stranded on the side of I-15, then that would only mean one thing, that I would have to act first. Although the act of commandeering the box didn't exactly seem like a simple task, we were in Fetch's car, after all. Perhaps when we stopped for gas, I could tuck the box under my arm and disappear into the wilds of Las Vegas. I could sell half the stash and find a nice apartment somewhere, and I'd still have enough left over to live the ultimate junkie fantasy, never having to wait anxiously for a dealer to pick up the phone, never having to wonder where I'll get my next hit. Just an endless supply of pure, uncut magic. The car veered again as Fetch's eyes drifted into the rearview mirror, and he righted it distractedly. I leaned over the center console and looked at the gauges. Tank's getting low, I said. You want to stop for gas? He looked at me coldly as I doused my cigarette in a half-empty Coke can, then reluctantly steered the car towards the nearest exit. We coasted down the off-ramp and swung into a nearby gas station. As we pulled up to the pump, Fetch parked the car with its passenger side nearly brushing up against the pump. I didn't even have room to open my door. You don't want to scoot over a bit? I said as Fetch stepped out of the car. I was going to get out and use the bathroom. Use it for what? Fetch asked, flashing a lurid smile as he shut the door. He walked over to the pump and swiped his credit card, or perhaps someone else's, then hastily shoved the nozzle into the tank. While the gas was pumping, he stood, hovering over the rear passenger window, gazing in at the cargo. I turned and hung my arm over the back seat, a few inches from the box. I was tempted to take another look at it, but I didn't want to open it while Fetch was looking. I didn't want to give him the impression that I was fixated on its contents. As I looked down at my arm, spotted with track marks, I noticed that I, too, looked desperately thin. I looked down at my slender abdomen, my wiry legs. I had always been skinny. Eating is something of a luxury when you have a heroin habit. But looking down at myself, I felt like I was wasting away. It was concerning, but I didn't stew on it for long. Because as I sat there, my arm still hanging over the seat, I became distracted by how warm it was in the back of the car. I could feel 
heat emanating from something in the back seat. Is it coming out of the box? I wondered. Maybe it was just heat from the engine. I strained my mind, trying to recall if Volvos had engines in the back, like those old Porsches and Volkswagens did. But I couldn't recall. And a few seconds later, Fetch opened up the driver's side door and heaved himself back inside. Without a word, he started the car, and we disappeared back into the inky black desert. When we'd started our drive back, Fetch had insisted on the radio remaining off, saying simply that he wanted to be able to hear. At first, it hadn't bothered me, but as the miles wore on, the silence became excruciating. It was just past 2 a.m. when we passed back through Las Vegas, and the city looked just as vibrant and obnoxious as ever. Even when we passed the strip, though, Fetch never averted his gaze. He just stared dead ahead, save for the momentary lapses when his eyes wandered into the mirror to gape at the box. When the lights of Sin City had faded behind us, and we'd passed all the shiny billboards for alien jerky and speeding ticket defense lawyers, I began to fear that I'd missed my chance to make off with the box, my junky fantasy vanishing with the flickering casino lights. As we proceeded into the open darkness, I felt increasingly vulnerable to Fetch's elusive impulses. Again, I found myself wondering what he might be planning, his eyes staring blankly at the cold black pavement. He was gaunt and looked even thinner than he had a few moments before. I was becoming genuinely concerned about him, but I didn't know what to say. A few more miles passed in silence before finally I turned to him. You sure you're doing okay over there? I asked. He let the question hang in the air for a few uncomfortable seconds before turning to me with eyes that were red with tears. I've been dreaming, he said, beginning to cry. What do you mean, I said, like when you sleep at night? But he didn't respond. He just smiled as another tear creased his face and dangled from his nostril. I've been dreaming about places I've never been, he said, still staring at me. What the hell is that supposed to mean, I said. Fetch, watch where you're going. He wiped the tears off his face and looked back at the highway. Never mind, he said. You'll see. I knew, in that moment, that something had gone very wrong. Do you want me to drive for a while? I asked. Fetch smiled again, his cheeks pallid and sunken. And then suddenly, without warning, he jerked the wheel and sent the car swerving off the road. As the tires left the pavement and slid across the gravel shoulder, a cloud of dust enveloped the car. I screamed at Fetch, demanding he stop, bracing myself against the dash with one hand while I reached for the wheel with the other. The suspension rumbled and clapped below us as rocks and desert shrubs rattled against the undercarriage. I managed to yank the wheel out of his grasp, and he brought the car to a stop in a shallow depression next to the highway. What the fuck are you doing? 
I asked him when I finally managed to catch my breath. He sat back in his seat, a pale husk of himself. Why don't you just make this easy on yourself, he said. Just get out of the car. I shook my head. What's the plan here, Fetch? Let's just think this through, huh? You don't understand, he said, his voice faint as though he were making a shameful admission. No, I think I understand, I said dismissively. You figure you'll take that kilo in the back seat and sell it, keep it all for yourself, which means you'll have to get rid of me. But I could tell by Fetch's vacant expression that I had lost him. Kilo, he said. What kilo? Are you talking about that massive ball of gold in the back seat? I stared at him, raptly. Gold, I said. You mean that the thing in that box looked like gold to you? Yeah, he said. Why? What did it look like to you? Dope, I said incredulously. But I didn't understand. How could it have appeared as two different things to two different people? Desire, said a tentative voice in my head. Could it really be? Could the thing in the box have simply showed us what we wanted to see? And if so, then what was it? I flipped on the overhead light and slowly turned around in my seat to face the box. As I reached my hand out towards it, I again felt that subtle warmth emanating from inside. I unlatched the brass clasp and lifted the box's lid, leaning over the back seat to look inside. I'm not sure what I expected to see, but I was certainly surprised to find that the glass sphere inside the box was empty. At least, it appeared empty at first. As I studied it, I saw that there was a jagged crack in the bottom, through which some of the sphere's contents was still leaking. I didn't want to touch it, but I could see an oily black substance puddling in the box's interior. The liquid had a bizarre kaleidoscopic appearance, and no longer smelled like heroin. I pulled myself away from it reflexively, still trying to make sense of what I was looking at. It was only when I sat back from it that I realized the mysterious liquid wasn't contained by the box. It was leaking out oozing down the front of the seat cushion, staining it a whole spectrum of colors all at once. It reflected in the light like an oil slick, shiny and prismatic. I could see more of it puddling on the ground below the seats. The strange, shimmering liquid, seeming to crawl on its own accord, looked so repulsive to me that I immediately turned and jumped out of the car swatting at my pants in a frenzy. Fetch turned slowly, and upon seeing the puddle of shimmering liquid for himself, flung his door open and tried to stagger out of the car. But he got tripped up on something. I circled around the vehicle and found Fetch lying on the gravel next to the driver's side door. His legs were still bound up inside the car, something dark and mucusy clinging to them. I grabbed his shoulders and tried to tug him free, but whatever it was, it was gripping him tightly just below the knees. I ran back around to the glove box and grabbed my flashlight, 
flicking it on to inspect Fetch's legs. The enigmatic puddle of liquid seemed to have migrated underneath Fetch's seat, before somehow rising up and wrapping itself around the skin of his calves. I could see its stringy mass pulsing like muscle tissue as it ascended into his pant legs and inexplicably fused with his skin. He seemed to be hardly aware of his predicament, lying supine on the desert earth, looking up occasionally with dull eyes to see the grotesque, formless entity that bound him to the car. As I inspected the throbbing mass, I found that its surface wasn't actually liquid, but consisted of thin and tightly packed hairs that shimmered and reflected in an array of hallucinogenic colors. The tiny hairs moved like tentacles, strengthening their grip on Fetch's legs as they spread across his skin. The axe, I blurted out. Stay there, I'll cut you free. I ran to the back of the car in a panic, heaving the axe out of the trunk and gripping it in my sweaty palms. Returning to Fetch's side, I grabbed his legs and pulled them as far from the car as I could. I didn't want to demolish his ankles when I swung the axe to try and slice the fibrous matter that was clinging to his legs. Lifting the heavy axe over my head, I swung and watched the sharp head of the blade dig into the disgusting mass. Only, rather than slicing it and cutting Fetch free, the blade simply sunk into it. A second later, the handle was yanked from my hands. I watched in disbelief as the furry, multicolored substance began to consume the axe. It seemed to swell and grow around it, engulfing first the steel blade and then beginning to climb up the wooden handle. I was so disturbed and perplexed by what I was seeing that I hardly noticed the pair of headlights pulling up just behind us. I just stood there, frozen in fear, until a voice broke the dull hum of the highway. You guys okay? I could hear someone saying. But I didn't respond. I just looked on in shock. The man, who I would later learn was a pharmacist named Roosh, jogged right past me to go help Fetch. I watched helplessly as he wrapped his arms around Fetch's thighs and tried to free him. What the hell is this stuff? I heard the man say. He grunted and tugged at Fetch's legs. And all the while, Fetch just laid there, seemingly catatonic. It was then that another pair of headlights pulled up. Only these headlights were joined by sirens. It was highway patrol. I heard a scream followed by a loud clap and drew my eyes back to Fetch's Volvo. But something was different. The driver's side door was no longer open and both Fetch and Roosh were nowhere to be seen. I could see a dark mass writhing around inside the car as the officer approached me, her gun already drawn. What the hell's going on down here? She said sternly. And then, pointing her gun at me, said, You, down on your knees. I lifted my hands into the air and obeyed her, slowly dropping to my knees. Suddenly, the Volvo's engine cut off, and its headlights went dark. The twisting form tumbled around inside the car, 
rocking it back and forth. Who's in that car? The officer asked, her beige round-brimmed hat sitting low above her brow. Don't, I said weakly. You just stay there, she replied. I could hear the crunch of her boots on the gravel as she drew closer to the car. When she arrived at the driver's side door, she lowered her gun and knocked firmly on the window, gesturing with her finger for whoever was inside to wind it down. Don't, I said again, and for a moment the tumbling mass inside the car came to a rest. The thing inside that was not quite human finally seemed to settle. The officer lifted her hand once more to knock, when the window exploded outwards as the axe head pierced through and dug into her forehead. Officer Diane Mayberry was dead by the time she hit the ground. As the thick steel blade was withdrawn from the gaping wound in her head, I could see the viscous, stringy appendage that was supporting it controlling its movements from somewhere within the atrocious new life form it had created. I stared at the scene of morbid destruction, as if seeing it through a long, dark tunnel. I felt essentially numb, and didn't think as much as just react. I managed to stand on trembling legs and stagger over to Roosh's car, an old BMW 3 Series that was still running. Throwing myself inside, I slammed the door and laid into the gas until the tires caught traction. When I got up on the highway, I cranked the wheel and slid through the median, punching the gas as I steered the car back towards Las Vegas. I ditched the car in front of an abandoned pawn shop downtown and spent what little money I had on a dumpy motel room. For a while, I hung around in Las Vegas religiously reading each day's newspaper as more developments surfaced about the horror show on I-15. The bodies of Fetch, Roosh, and Officer Mayberry were never recovered, though evidence of all three of them was present at the scene, in the massive amount of blood left in and around the car. There were times when I felt tempted to walk into a station and confess what I'd seen, but I knew it wouldn't accomplish anything. All I would do was cast suspicion back upon myself. So I just sat in hotel rooms and laid inebriated on couches, cooking up shots of smack so thick they ran through my veins like slugs. It was months before I would return to L.A., but when I did, I wasn't surprised to find that Pavel too had disappeared. I still don't know what was inside that strange spherical container or why we'd been sent there to retrieve it. But I could guess that Pavel never expected us to get far. Perhaps what happened was exactly what he'd intended, that it, whatever it may be, would consume us before it ever got to him. It's a fate I still feel I would freely accept most nights. Maybe that's just survivor's guilt talking but I'm not always sure that what I got is better. Going on, night after night, with that vile abomination dragging itself through my dreams.
Hello, and thank you so much for listening. While I have you here, I guess I'll let you know that I have social media. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. They're both linked in the show. There's also a subreddit now if you're on Reddit. And of course, I have a Patreon. It charges $3 for every new episode that comes out. And when you're a patron, you can listen to my entire 8-plus hour audiobook, Solace. You also get to listen to every episode a few days early. Um, and the Patreon has its own RSS feed. There's a link in the show notes, um, as well as in the bio for the show. But in case you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. I would also be very honored if you left a rating or review if you like the show. Uh, Those go a long way towards helping the show get listeners and get noticed by new people. And lastly, uh, seeing as Halloween is upon us, I wanted to spend a few minutes uh, calling out and giving props to some of the independent horror podcasts that I enjoy. Firstly, big shout out to We're Not Meant to Know, uh, which is made by an anonymous person somewhere in the world. I don't know who they are. They could be your neighbor. But regardless, they're a great writer and great voice actor, and they make terrific episodes. Check out We're Not Meant to Know wherever you listen to podcasts. Number two on my list is the Formid Dread Horror, which is made by Owen Summer. Um, relatively new podcast, but really talented writing. Terrific voice acting. Couldn't recommend it enough. Uh, check out the Formid Dread Horror wherever you listen. Third, I want to call out The Goblin Market, which is made by Nolan Sordle. Terrific atmosphere, very unnerving. Creepy stories. Check out The Goblin Market. Next up, uh, Nightlight, which is terrific. Made by a whole cast of writers and voice actors and just an all-around unique, creative, interesting show. And then we have Story Garden, which is made by the talented Connor Bushoven. Connor played two roles in one of my episodes, Progeny, and he's a really good voice actor. Um, on Story Garden, he reads some of the classics, so if you enjoy listening to old Poe and Ambrose Beers and stuff like that, then definitely check out Story Garden. Next, I want to mention Ghosts on This Road, made by Linda Wadawick. This is a great creepy travelogue type show. You have guest narration provided by the incredible Soren Narnia. So definitely check out Ghosts on This Road. And it should go without saying, but also, of course, I can't do something like this without mentioning Soren's other show, Knife Point Horror, which is just a huge inspiration of mine. Um, so obviously listen to Knife Point as well. I'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for listening. It seriously means the world to me. And I hope you guys have a great Halloween. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.